Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our Sunday service. Um, at the end of July, it's always shocking how fast time goes. It's almost the end of the summer. So for those of you who don't know us, my name is Nayaswami Devi, and this is Nayaswami Jyotish, and we'll be leading our Sunday service with you this morning. We have a very interesting topic this week from rays of the one light, which are comparing passages from the Bhagavad Gita and the Bible to show the underlying similarity in these teachings. So our topic is, and this is not a political statement, (laughs) how democratic is truth? Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. We live in an age when people assume that knowledge should be available equally to all. In matters susceptible of judgment by normal common sense, however, everyone knows that there are exceptions. Access to a control room for intercontinental missiles is limited by universal consent to a very few. Access to the controls of a passenger airline is limited to those with the necessary knowledge for operating them and also to those with the proper authorization. authorization. If people don't see the disadvantages of making more subtle knowledge universally available, it is only because they are ignorant of the risks involved. In the case of subtle knowledge, the main disadvantage in making it universally available is the harm it might do to one who isn't ready for it and who might even mock it. True, by mocking truth, he might undermine the faith of a few truth seekers, but then such tests can also be beneficial as a means of strengthening faith. Again, true, the clever doubter's misrepresentation of those truths may dissuade a few seekers from following the spiritual path. But if a seeker really is sincere, he will recognize the truth eventually because it resonates with his own being. No, the greatest problem accrues to the shallow doubter himself. To give him an opportunity to affirm his ignorance might only estrange him even more from the truth, delaying the time when he will turn, as all people must, eventually, to the light. Thus, the scriptures advise not secrecy, but discretion in sharing of truth. Jesus Christ says in the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 7, Give not that which is holy unto dogs, Neither cast ye your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again and rend you. And Sri Krishna says in the 18th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, Never speak of these truths to one who is without self-control or devotion, who renders no service, who does not care to hear, or who speaks ill of me. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh.
Good morning, everyone. Thanks for coming. So, should be fun sharing these teachings. You're ready for them. <laughs> That's what today's lesson is about, is when are you ready, and what teachings should you get as you become ready. So, you're ready for these, obviously. <laughs> Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting here. So, I'm going to read from Whispers from Eternity, which are beautiful explanations, prayers, demands that Yogananda wrote that help us understand the proper direction of our consciousness to be open in all circumstances of life. Today I'm going to read his spiritual interpretation of the Lord's Prayer. And since not everyone grew up in a Christian world, um, those of you who grew up will know that the Lord's Prayer is considered, for Christians, Jesus said, this is the way that we should pray. So I assume basically all Christians are taught the uh, Lord's Prayer, although my experience is only in Father Williams's Episcopalian Church in Austin, Minnesota. So, <laughs> But I'll assume that that's a kind of a universal teaching. So as we were taught it, it is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have trespassed against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I might have missed that a little. I don't know whether I'd get through confirmation with that repetition. <laughs> but it matters not, because the mere repetition of words, even in the right order, is kind of the lowest level of prayer. Prayer needs to be internalized and, and deeply understood and then deeply felt. And then finally you go beyond the words of the prayer into the essence of it. So here's Yogananda's interpretation of the Lord's Prayer. O Heavenly Father, Mother, Friend, Beloved God, may the halo of Thy presence spread over all minds. May the religion of matter worship be converted into loving, direct worship of Thee. Since without the, thy power to love, we cannot truly love anything, may we love thee first and above everything else. May the heavenly kingdom of bliss, where thou dwellest, manifest itself with all its divine qualities on earth. And may all lands be freed from limitations, imperfections, and miseries. Let thy kingdom within us manifest itself without. Father, leave, leave us not in the pit of temptations into which we fell by the misuse of thy gift of reason. When we become freer and stronger, should it be thy wish to test us, to see whether we love thee more than any temptation, then, Father, make thyself more tempting than temptation. O Father, if it be thy wish to test us, 
Help us keep our willpower strong enough to meet all thy tests. Give us our daily bread, food, health, and prosperity for the body, efficiency for the mind, and above all, the wisdom and love for our souls. Teach us to deliver ourselves without thy, with thy help from the meshes of ignorance which we have woven through our own carelessness. So this subject of where we are spiritually and when it is right to both either give or to receive teachings is one that is not necessarily as easy to address now. I think these things were more or less automatically understood before we got a little more advanced into the age of WikiLeaks and, and the consciousness that everything should be available to everyone regardless of their level of wisdom, regardless of their level of commitment, or regardless of any outer conditions, that everyone is basically equal and therefore should be have access to everything that everyone else does. Well, everyone is basically equal as a soul, but as the reading pointed out, everyone is not basically equal in the knowledge that they have or the discrimination that they have. If, if you believe in democracy, the next time you get sick and need an operation, just go out on the street and see you know, tell the people what your problem is and get a vote. How you should be dealt with, who should operate, where it should be done. You know, I mean, everybody has the common sense to know that in the physical world that there are certain areas of knowledge, areas of expertise, of learning, of commitment that qualify a person to do certain tasks. So a doctor has to have years and years of training in order to be able to do that. And so, but that's kind of obvious to us. But what about things requiring discrimination, requiring love, requiring wisdom? Swami Kriyananda said that real wisdom is the combination of the discrimination of the mind and the love of the heart. And when those two combine, especially because feeling, which emanates from the heart, from the anahat chakra, that feeling nature is actually more perceptive than the discrimination of our minds. And our minds often will simply be vehicles to rationalize what our feeling has already decided. But feeling and discrimination combined will lead us to wisdom. Well, for those people who have not developed refined feelings and not developed very much discrimination, then should they be given equal access, one, to teachings, and secondly, to the power over others of making decisions that might affect other people's lives? I would say no. WikiLeaks might 
have a different answer for that. But I think we're in an age, much like uh, early teenage years, where we're in an age of rebellion. And that age of rebellion makes us unavailable or unwilling to have higher teachings. As we end the service today, we will read uh, the Festival of Light. And in that Festival of Light, there's a story of a bird, which I will read. And that's basically the story of the bird, is basically the story of the soul's... It isn't really the soul's evolution. The soul comes in with knowledge, but as it comes into the ego meaning the soul identified with the body and the personality, that identification gradually has to evolve until we see ourselves in a much more expansive way. So the story starts out, and for those of you who know the Ananda symbol, I don't think Swami did this consciously, but the Ananda joy symbol is also the same energy as the story of the bird and so the joy symbol starts with a, a basically a mountain peak I wish we had an example here but basically a mountain peak and then there's an energy that comes up like that and in the story of the bird it says the parents tell the bird to, sh- to go forth be fruitful in the gifts we had. this is God telling the soul go forth be fruitful in the gifts that we have given you. Expand and multiply them and share them with others, even as we have shared with you. That's an upward-moving energy, but the bird at this point is a hatchling. It hasn't done anything in order to earn those gifts. And so in the evolution of our consciousness, there's a long time in reincarnation when we work on instinctual levels only. And so we don't have... uh, Master said that a tiger, when a tiger kills a prey, even though killing is not the right thing to do, for the tiger it is the right thing to do, and it's instinctually guided. And so karmically, the tiger doesn't receive any karmic demerits, one might say, for killing its prey. But as as we come into the human level, then we're given the freedom of choice. So we have free will and we have an evolved enough nervous system. The chakras, especially in the subtle spine, are are evolved enough for us to achieve enlightenment or achieve union with God. And I'll talk a little more about that later. So what we're always working toward is enlightenment or a union with God because we came from God. We're the, ultimate, the ultimate end of this long cycle is to merge back into God and to know that consciously. That's what Master called self-realization. So at any rate, the energy is going up. The bird is going forth. It's already received the gifts. All it has to do is expand and multiply them. And then it begins to think, what else is wisdom if not to keep what is mine for myself? Why should I share my gifts? Why should I help other people? Why should I do these things? And as those thoughts of 
See, the ego is the element that separates us from everything else. So as the thoughts of enhancing and strengthening and making more powerful my ego, that draws us into more separation. So in the joy symbol, that first loop comes up, then it begins to go sideways, and <laughs> then it begins to descend. And, and that period is called the rebel. The tiny rebel says that. So we go through that period of rebellion. Well, in that period of rebellion, if spiritual teachings are introduced to that soul, that soul is going to reject them. It's going to say, no way, you're crazy. Uh, because it's interested primarily, as it says in the Gita, what are the, qualifica- or what are the disqualifications? And therefore, if you reverse those disqualifications, one is the involvement in, in the senses. And so Krishna says those lacking in self-control should not be given these teachings. So if, if that downward descending phase wants to stimulate the senses, wants to rebel, wants to increase the ego, then to try to introduce teachings in there that say, here's how you overcome the ego. Here's how you become detached. will simply lead that person to reject that. And Swami Kriyananda taught us not to give teachings at the phase in a person or advice. He was teaching us, helping us learn how to counsel people. And he said, don't give people counsel that they're going to reject. First of all, just listen carefully and listen to them, listen to the, what they're asking behind the questions, and then just answer what they're asking. Don't jump in and give them what they're not ready to hear. We had, in the early years of Ananda, a person who was very enthusiastic, but very lacking in discrimination and common sense. And so one time, shortly after Davy's father passed away, her mother and an aunt came to San Francisco and Davy went down to visit uh, her mother uh, with this woman who was going down and offered to give her a, a ride down. So her mother and aunt were staying in the home of her cousins, all of them uh, of Jewish background. And so they came down. This woman goes in, I'm not going to name her, for those of you who know her will probably figure it out. Anyway, she goes in and decides that this is the time to teach these people how to chant. And I think the chant, if I'm not mistaken, was Hare Krishna. So, so she had tried to get them to chant Hare Krishna with her. And then she exited. Well, so did their interest in this spiritual path exit. And so it was years, I mean decades, before 
Davy's cousins opened up to her life and Davy's mother opened up sooner. But you see, imposing something before a person is ready makes them reject it. And so it isn't so much for our sake that these limitations are there. I mean, it isn't so much for the sake of what we give out. It's for the sake of the welfare of the people receiving these teachings. So here we have the bird in that phase of existence where it's descending and it's in rebellion. And then gradually, through lots and lots of experiences in life, it begins to go through those kinds of difficulties and tests and the things that begin to shake its confidence in what else is wisdom except to keep what is yours for yourself, that confidence begins to get shaken a little bit and then it begins to learn from life. And it learns from the wind and the rain and the night and the night's counsel and it begins to open up to teachings. At that point, the soul becomes ready to receive spiritual teachings but only mildly still at that point the soul Swami said that at that point generally what people do is that they begin to read different books they're not ready to commit to a particular path or a particular guru but they're interested they're interested in self-improvement they're interested in somehow expanding their knowledge and and doing, doing uh, what that which it takes to expand. And so gradually, the soul begins to look for teachers and teachings. And then finally, it, it uh, really begins to ask the question of, if it realizes that everything that it was thinking was right isn't giving it happiness. That which I thought was right was but darkness. And it begins to ask, where can I find real light? Where can I find real wisdom? Where can I find true knowledge? And then it gets the counsel, look to the source of all power if you would conquer fear and weakness. And it asks, where can I find that source? That source lies within. Look within your own self for the source of all power. And at that point, that soul is ready now for the teachings of earlier on, if we had said, forget all worldly pleasures, get over the ego, don't get involved in these things, don't stimulate the senses, that soul would simply reject. But now it's seen that that doesn't bring up freedom or happiness or joy and it says now it's ready for the teachings that say look within happiness is within joy is within it's not outside you and so at that point the soul becomes uh, ready for that and then it attracts a teacher a true teacher and that true teacher the guru begins to open it up so in the in the joy symbol, that energy has come up, it's rebelled, it's gone down, and then it comes up in a bigger loop, and it comes up to the peak, 
and then it receives enlightenment and then it comes back down that form of the little bird in the joy symbol comes back down in order to help others but as we progress these things that seem sort of symbolic cease to be symbolic they become real so an example of that um, in, in the statement from the Bible that we read Jesus said uh, cast not that which is holy before dogs and so it reminds me of a story of, that happened uh, to Ananda Moi Ma and this is about symbolism and realism so Ananda Moi Ma was one of the greatest, cent- uh, greatest saints of the 20th century had millions of followers throughout India and she was a great saint from early on in her life even as a teenager she was mostly in samadhi and many many experiences so she had almost no schooling but when she needed any knowledge it would just be there for instance if she was asked to do some kind of a ceremony and that ceremony had a Sanskrit mantra and maybe that Sanskrit mantra was 20 minutes long having never read never heard never studied she would simply begin repeating the mantra in exact correctness in Sanskrit so that kind of thing so coming back to what is symbol and what is reality most of us and in fact most people who believe in God have some sort of a ritual where they offer the meal to God we sing a little song and uh, which offers that and others say a prayer and so on so that's that's a very nice thing to do it's a very good practice but the first level of it is simply saying those words that doesn't mean that your mind is really offering that to God. You can be singing those words or saying the prayer and be thinking about maybe later we'll go to the mall or whatever it is. You know, your mind is just out there. You aren't concentrated, as we read with the affirmation. You're not focused on what you're doing. You're just going through a kind of a ritual. Well, deeper than that, is the true offering where you really do you concentrate you have the awareness that everything that you take into your body the food that you're going to eat the air that you breathe the sunlight it's all provided by God for you and you offer back in remembrance of that fact the little bit of food and you ask that it be purified so that when purified means the food doesn't need purification, your consciousness needs purification. So that, so that when you eat that food, you eat it in remembrance of the fact that you are being supported by all the things in life that allow you to, to live. And so we have a friend, had a friend. I think we still have a friend, but she's not in the body any longer. She was a deep disciple of Ananda Moy Ma, and Ma would teach her to take a little bit of the offering of food, and she would take, and she had 
a little doll, a little murti of Krishna. And she would offer it to Krishna. So sometimes we would go to lunch and she would take Krishna's food to offer it. And she might be gone for 15 minutes or a half hour, truly offering that to Krishna. And so her consciousness was at the next level of prayer where there's deep sincerity and it's beyond ritual. It's, it's, it's a true offering. All of this is symbolic of us offering ourselves back into the light. And so we still are at that level of offering, which brings me back to the story about Ananda Moima. So in her youth, she was married as a child bride in India. Very, very saintly husband, and she was mostly in samadhi, so not the typical marriage. Um, Her husband wanted to do a puja ceremony. A puja ceremony in India is an offering, a, a fire ceremony. And it's evolved over centuries, so there are highly prescribed forms to it. And so he got a very, very saintly, very well-known um, priest to come to do the prayers and the offerings. And Ananda Ma is a young girl, she was probably 17, 18 at the time, was cooking the food. Well, the food had to be prepared in a very special way. There had to be rice that was grown in a certain way and only sun ripened, not ripened afterwards. And so the rice had to be obtained in a certain way, cooked in a certain way. All of these offerings had to be done in a very highly ritualized way. And so Ananda Ma went through all of this, Nirmala at the time was her name, went through all of this and had the meal ready and it was in the kitchen and a dog came in and, and took a little of it. And so that defiled it. So she had to start all over again. So she took the tray with the offerings on. She put it out under a tree. And she started all over again with the cooking ritual. And you know the priest was saying, come on, come on, come on, where is it? And the husband was a little bit anxious. But as she was doing this, she saw, because they had already started the fire for the fire, this was to be offered into the fire, she saw come out of the fire, I think it was to Shiva, it was either Shiva or Ram, she saw the form of Shiva come out of the fire, go over to the tree, and partake of the food, (laughs) and eat it, and then just disappear. Well, the husband, seeing this defiled food, went and threw it in the pond, just threw it away. And, you know, Ma was in the kitchen cooking, the priest was out there. The husband didn't have the same level of awareness that Ma had. He didn't see that the God had manifested and eaten it. And so, but I say that because the reality when we offer that food is that God is there. And God will partake of that food if we are in the right consciousness. But, I mean, it's all, God's 
God's everything anyway, but it's all about our consciousness. And so then after the ceremony was done, Ma related this, and the priest said, well, where's that food? That's the true rites. That's the true food that we should now partake of. That's prashad, that food that's been sanctified. And husband said, well, I threw it away. He said, oh, that's too bad. Well, we'll just have to take this ritual food that, that was the second meal cooked. But see, at that level, these subtle teachings that seem symbolic or superstitious or whatever, they become real to us. And so our part is to go through using our free will to do what we can to keep turning ourselves in such a way that we receive the true teachings. And the more we want them, the more we get to the level at which we should be given them. But if we're rejecting them, Master said, God won't manifest to most people because if he did, all they would want to do is argue with him. <laughs> I think it was Mark Twain who said, many people want to serve God, most of them in an advisory capacity. <laughs> <laughs> and so these, these, the true reality doesn't come to us before we're ready for it, nor should we impose it on others out of enthusiasm before they're ready for it. So just be gentle in your sharing. Be kind, be loving, be joyful. Mainly share by example, not by, and certainly never by imposition. And when we do that, like sunlight and rain on a plant, that plant grows naturally. It grows up to the point where it's ready to receive the nurturing or the pruning or the uh, whatever it is that will help it produce fruit again. And so it's all part of a beautiful process. But here we've been talking about what the natural stage is. So when we read the story of the bird, listen with fresh ears to it because I think you'll understand it a little better. God bless you.